anxiety, depression, stress, and burnout. College students like me today faced a number of mental health challenges, and in these times, seeking help from a professional or counseling has never been more difficult. That's why a group of students have developed a new way to get 24-7 access to mindfulness and well-being resources at your fingertips. Cali. Instead of other mindfulness apps which generalize your symptoms, Cali is designed to be tailored to your personal needs and its intuitive AI gives me motivational tips, workout assessments, and an ear to listen to my thoughts. As featured by Microsoft and the Clinton Foundation, Cali is an award-winning app brought to you by Crest Health. Download Cali using the referral link from the description or from the 47podcast.com website and try Cali for a week for free with no commitments and get 10% off your first subscription. Hello, my name is Jacob. And my name is Yuma. And welcome back to the 47 podcast. Been away for a while, took a break from school, at our school break, winter break, a lot of things going on, but we're back. Unfortunately, Corona is still here, so that never left. Uh, I'm coming to you, not necessarily live, but recording this uh, from my school in Rhode Island, so across the country from you now, Yuma, different time zones. But yeah, we like to continue our podcast as usual and go ahead with our uh, focus of the week, which is osechi, which is a traditional Japanese New Year dish that is eaten at, um, on New Year's Day. And this dish includes multiple components, actually. And to be specific, different ingredients are cooked separately and then put into the box, like a box-like container called the jubako. And then it can be collectively called the sechi. And the interesting characteristic about sechi lies behind the reason why it has so many varieties of dishes inside. And this is actually because each and every part resembles a specific meaning with regards to celebrating the new year. And to name a few that belong in every osechi, uh, there's kamaboko, or fish cake with the reddish pink surrounding the white inner layer, which is a reminiscent of Japan's rising sun. Uh, datemaki, or a rolled omelette that is actually quite sweet in taste, that symbolizes success. Kazunoko, or herring roe that symbolizes the wish to be gifted with many children. Kuromame, or black soybeans that resemble health. And kombu, or seaweed that represent joy. And you might be wondering, why do these dishes resemble you know, each of these? And to tell you the truth, there actually is a pattern. And there are exceptions, including the kamaboko. Mm. Which is, um, as you can see, it's kind of like um, the appearance of the dish resembles you know, like a cultural symbol. But usually, it's actually more like a pun, to be honest. <laughs> uh, for example, <laughs> yeah, for example, um, you have kazunoko. Kazu means number, mm-hmm. and ko means child. And what kazunoko resembles, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is the wish to be gifted with many children. Oh, so it's, yeah, taking into account of what the dish actually describes using uh, its kanjis or just terms in general. It's a lot of more 
thought and effort kind of goes into the Japanese dishes and the mm-hmm. dishes you find, you know, this side of the Pacific Ocean, just people throwing <laughs> whatever they have on the barbecue or oven or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so um, I also ate it earlier this month in New Year's, but my parents were made sure that I uh, took every part of the sushi so that all these dishes that resemble each and every cultural symbols were to be, you know, so that I would be able to secure all of them. <laughs> now, I've never had uh, sushi before, even though my time in Japan was actually right through New Year's. Where does one get osechi from? Is it just from any supa in Japan, or do you have to go to a specialty store? Or <laughs> supa meaning yeah. supermarket is what they. Is it yeah. So usually, uh, well, obviously, New Year's is considered you know a serious thing in uh, not just Japan. I'm sure in um, everywhere around Asia. Right. So this isn't necessarily like a cuisine where you can just purchase right off the supermarket. This is uh, something you would. One would actually make, usually, but if not, one's too busy, like my family was actually. Uh, my family was too busy, so we decided to purchase it uh, from a friend of my mom's. Um, and I think usually there isn't really um, a store that specializes in Osechi, just because it's once a year. So. Right, it'd be a very seasonal mm-hmm. dish, kind of dish. Yeah. So yeah, if there was such store, it wouldn't be in business. <laughs> <laughs> like a couple of days <laughs> yeah it fall flat pretty quick when mm-hmm. yeah and um if you can check out a picture of a sushi online you can see that the images online are very flamboyant full of color and those are definitely the most fancy ones you'll see to describe it and, for the audience it's sort of like a, a grand luxurious buffet mm-hmm. but in bento boxes yeah, um, so these osechis usually come in three-tier boxes. And the interesting part about this is that each dish actually has a designated place to be put in inside the box. And you can see that for yourself, but um, it'll be probably easier to look at a picture and follow along uh, this podcast. But uh, the most eye-catching feature of the osechi would be the lobster, or the shrimp that goes right through the middle of the top layer. And uh, followed along with all the other dishes surrounding it. And you can see that the bottom two layers are in pretty much uh, equilateral squares that are cut into you know nine pieces, and then each of those squares are filled with a specific dish. Very geometrical. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh... And from like a color that that you can see from these pictures online, you can tell that these are quite expensive. <laughs> I can see. Even that. the one, yeah. Even the one that I had uh, earlier this year, it wasn't the most fancy and uh, flamboyant as the ones that we see online, but it was $100 each for a two-person portion. So, and uh, because I have, uh, my family is, or there are five members of my family, so mm-hmm. I had to buy two, two sets of those. Is that how much you spent? So that's how much you spent on the Osechi boxes? Mm-hmm. All right. Oh. So the ones that you, you would see online would most likely be around 500, 600. They're the fanciest ones, most likely. Hopefully you got a stuffed wallet around the holidays in Japan because I know uh, right before this, I think we discussed earlier, maybe we didn't, my memory is serving correctly, of having KFC around 
uh, Christmas time, and usually those containers, those boxes, the meals are like fifty dollars, I think. Mm-hmm. So right. pretty expensive, pretty expensive food, mm-hmm. but uh, definitely yeah. delicious. It looks worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as I said, you know, Japan and other Asian countries take these uh, seasonal events very seriously. So I think spending money wouldn't be too much of an issue when they are considering, you know, which Osechi to buy from which store, just the ones that would actually fulfill their, you know, cultural expectations. It's always a, it's also a bit of, you know, trying to impress the friends and family, throw something a little special during the year. Mm-hmm. So. That's right, yeah. And um, another interesting part about Osechi is the kanji used for the word Osechi. Mm-hmm. And kanji actually used actually refers directly to season and as i said you know seasonal events taken seriously uh, which actually originates all the way back to the heian period and that's when you know cultural shifts began to spur between it's um the countries that surround japan including china korea and then also obviously um later on westernization that happened but right. most uh Predominantly China that influenced this uh, osechi to be its uh, traditional New Year dish. Pretty grand dish indeed. Check it out uh, on our website. You can find osechi and other recipes on our website at 47podcast.com. That's F-O-R-T-Y-S-E-V-E-N podcast.com. You can follow our Twitter Twitter handle at 47cast, F-O-U-R-T-Y 7cast, and our Instagram, 47podcast. And this week, we have a question from Glenn from California for the dinner table. So Glenn is wondering if he'll get weird looks uh, if he can't use chopsticks in Japan. I've actually had a few people ask me this, that there's sort of this, I think stereotype or image that you know all japanese people eat with chopsticks for all the time there's i can there's quite a few examples actually where you don't necessarily need to use chopsticks um for example if you're going to curry house like koko ichibanya right it's more (laughs) more practical to use a spoon obviously um but even something as common as sushi um, a lot of times you'll use your hands I'm not sure if that's quite recommended during this era, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's common in a few different dishes not to use chopsticks. But I think, you know, in a lot of places, they're pretty understanding um, if you can't use chopsticks. Um, and I don't think they'll be too offended if you bring your own silverware. But uh, obviously, before you bust out a fork or a knife from your pocket, <laughs> um <laughs> you might want to ask the staff if they have any silverware or something for you to right. b- borrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. But uh, I think the most important part with that is that um, I think you sh- definitely should attempt uh, to be able to use ohashi or chopsticks. Um, not just straight away go to, you know, res- resort to forks or spoons. Just show them that you have the intention of trying to adapt to their culture, you know, to show that you actually care. Um, and I'm sure there will 
definitely be helpful. I mean, there's no way they wouldn't tell you how to use it if you ask them, at least. So just show them that you're trying to learn how to use them and I, it's sort of a cardinal sin to bring this restaurant up on a, you know, Asian food podcast, but I'll bring it up of my early memories of going to Panda Express. <laughs> um, I think that's where I learned how to use chopsticks. Because um, I remember just always asking, like, Mom, Mom, can I, can I get the chopsticks? I really want to, like, practice this time. <laughs> um, she would let me get the chopsticks with my food. And I remember when I was really young, um, six, six or seven years old, I actually broke my right arm, and so I had to spend a while learning how to use chopsticks with my left hand, and so it was like <laughs> I, had to, I had to relearn how to use chopsticks all over again, so I've learned how to use chopsticks in both hands now. Oh, wow, and you're able to use chopsticks with your left hand? Yeah, still. Right now? Wow, that's actually crazy, because um, as a person who's used chopsticks his entire life, uh, only with the right arm, right arm specifically, though, I don't think I would be able to use it for the left <laughs> arm at all. <laughs> I'll be honest. Yeah. That's um really impressive from a Japanese person. Wow. What? <laughs> so, yeah. Keep your comments, questions, stories coming in. Thank you, Glenn. And I think that is it for this week's episode. And we'll catch you all next time. Thank you. Have a good one.